subjects that is often misunderstood, and most of the time we honestly overcomplicate it way more than it has to be. And I'm going to guess in a crowd this size, whether you're here in person or you're online, uh, there are a vast array of people where we are at in our prayer lives. There are some of you that are consistent in your prayer lives, that uh, you are faithful in your prayer lives, that when you pray, you kind of feel this automatic connection, this power between you and Christ. When, you, when some of you pray, you, just, you have this sense of peace that comes over you, just, that takes over that moment like no other time. And for some of you, you just have this, this amazing ability to, to get energized by prayer. And, and you're just so ready to face whatever challenge comes before you. But my guess is that's not everybody that's here. That not all of us are in that same boat, whether you're here or online. That My guess is that there are some of us who really, if we're truly honest with ourselves, we kind of struggle with this idea of prayer. We're kind of like some of these folks on this video that we struggle with knowing how all does this work. Like, we know we should pray. That's something we, we get taught when we're a very little kid. Like, this is what you should do. Everybody should be praying. But we're kind of uncomfortable as adults because we don't know what that's supposed to look like as adults. Like, is it okay to say, now lay me down to sleep when you're 40 years old? Is it okay to say, like, um, God is great, God is good when you're 50? Is that okay? Or do we keep doing it that way? Is that working for us? Like, is that, is that what prayer supposed to be like? Is there some kind of magical greeting or ending that you're supposed to have? Is there some magical formula that if you say this, you get your prayers answered, but if you don't say it, you don't, or you get your prayers answered? My guess is that some of us in this room may be kind of struggling with this disconnect that happens in our prayers. Like, we're not so much worried about the words that we say or, or the magical formula. We just when we pray, we just don't feel this connection like we've been told supposed to be there. We feel this disconnect that's happening to us uh, that, that we, we're not worried about the words. We're not worried about that. We just we don't feel the connection that we think we're supposed to have. And so for some of us, we felt such disconnect at these points in prayer that we're really starting to question whether prayer matters at all. Whether we should be praying of this or whether we, God even hears our prayers. And so this morning, uh, we started this series uh, in January with the book of Proverbs talking about uh, this practical wisdom that we have. We worked through the first nine chapters before Easter. We took a little break for Easter and Palm Sunday. And now we're going to jump back into the book of Proverbs. But instead of going ber- verse by verse like we were doing... The, the book of Proverbs really changes in chapter 10. And so if you've read through chapter 10, it doesn't, it's not uniformed in the way it's structured. And so there's verses that are kind of scattered all over the place. And so from here through a while, we're going to kind of focus on these ideas of uh, topics that the verses teach us. All right? So we're not just going to read one section of Scripture. We're going to kind of pull it by topic. And this morning we're going to be focused on prayer, like we've said. And so um, we're going to look at uh, several passages of Scripture. So just jumping all over the place in, in the book of Proverbs, really chapter 15 and chapter 28. But chapter 15, we're going to read verse 8 and then verse 29. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me. Proverbs 15, verse 8, uh, simply says, The sacrifice of the wicked is detestable to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. And we're going to skip over to verse 29. You're going to see the theme of prayer running through all of these. Verse 29, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of of the righteous. Then we're going to flip on over to verse uh, chapter 28 uh, verse 9. And it says even or excuse me anyone who turns his ear away from hearing the law even his prayer is detestable. In the last section we're going to look at uh, same chapter chapter 28 verse 13 and 14. Verse 13 says the one who conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Happy is the one who is always reverent 
but the one who hardens his heart falls into trouble. Let's pray together this morning. God, I pray this morning that we will not harden our heart to you. God, I pray this morning that we will sense a sense of reverence, not just in this place, not just in this building, but in our lives and in our heart. A sense of reverence knowing, God, that you are in control and that you are in charge. A sense of reverence knowing, God, that there is nothing too big for you. And yet a sense of reverence that welcomes us in. Despite what we have done, despite what we have been through, a sense of reverence that says, come to be my child. Come, let me hold you and care for you. So God, in this moment, I pray that we feel the flood that is coming and overwhelming us. I pray that we are moved with a sense of reverence that moves us beyond comfort and complacency. God, I pray that we are moved with reverence. God, that will move us to a place of uncomfort so that we can become more like you and desire you more and more each and every day. God, so that we can be your delight. God, so that we can be your joy. God, that you can find satisfaction in us far greater than we have brought to you in the past. And so, God, I pray that you speak in these few moments that we have. But, God, I pray for us that we are obedient to the moving of your Spirit this morning, to the call of prayer this morning. And, God, I pray that you will move beyond what we expect and beyond what we think and beyond what we can even imagine. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the 1950s, TV actors were not quite treated with the same kind of elite status that they are now. And um, in fact, they were trying to treat it like local celebrities. They, they, were, uh, they made public appearances. They would throw out the first pitch at Little League baseball games. They would uh, show up at an opening store or a grand opening of a store. They would, um, they would show up when a, a, a city was dedicating a new park or a statue. And instead of being surrounded by security, they would be surrounded by people who wanted to meet them. And they actually welcomed these folks to come and meet them and shake their hands. And they actually touched people. Isn't that weird? Like having a celebrity actually touch you and, and allow you to get his autograph. But there was one actor that had a little harder time than some of the other actors in those days. You see, when George Reeves made guest appearances. Kids didn't just come up to him to shake his hand. Some of them came up and kicked him in the shins. Some of them literally took rocks and picked them up and threw them at him. And it's not because they didn't like him. In fact, they did it because they loved him. They did it because they wanted to know if this man standing in front of them was the same man they saw on the TV screen. If Superman was real or not, because that's who was standing in front of them. They, they did this to test and see if he really was as strong as he said he was and he acted like he was. If he really was as fast as he said he was on TV. Or was this all real or was this just him acting on TV? In fact, there's one story about a young fan who um, wanted to, to test Reeves so much that he brought his dad's Colt 45 pistol to the, this grand opening of a store because he literally wanted to watch bullets bounce off Superman's chest. 
And so as the young man pulled the gun out and got ready to, to tell them this is what he wanted to do, and he wanted to test this out, George Reeves kind of said that he was dressed in his iconic Superman costume, and he, he talked the boy down, he talked him into putting the gun down, and he says, listen, son, you need to know that absolutely, you could shoot Superman, and the bullets would bounce off my chest, and they wouldn't hurt me whatsoever. But I'm not worried about me. You see, when you fire that gun and they bounce off me, there's a decent chance it may come back and it may hit you. There's a decent chance that when you hit me and it bounces off me, it's going to hit somebody else in this crowd. And so you really don't want to do that because you're going to put other people in danger. You see, in that moment, George Reeves became Superman, not because of the action of taking a bullet to the chest, but because of the attitude of always caring for other people. You see, the people that were in that crowd realized at that moment that it wasn't the action of taking a bullet, it wasn't the action of having super strength. None of that made him Superman. What made him Superman was that he always cared and he was always looking out for the best interests of everybody else. And so, sure, I'm going to be honest with you, there probably was a, a motive in there because he probably really didn't want to test this idea of him getting shot, but he phrased it in a way that made it look like Superman really cares more about the people around him than about himself. You see, and that's the same lesson... We have in the book of Proverbs about prayer is that it really is not the actions that are important. It's the attitude that we come to it with. And that's the first attitude or first lesson we see in the book of Proverbs. You see that attitude is way more important than the action of praying itself. And uh, we spent some time reading through the book of Proverbs. And if you've done that, you probably know, um, you've probably seen that Solomon writes these in couplets. Like he'll write one line that carries one subject and one idea, and then he'll carry another line that carries a different subject and a different idea. And a lot of times he does them to contrast two different things. And he, he'll point out one thing and he'll point out something different so that you can see a huge difference between those two. And that's what he does in Proverbs 15, verse 8. He contrasts the sacrifice of the wicked with the prayer of someone who is upright, with someone who is righteous. And so look with me in verse, or chapter 15, verse 8. And like I said, we're going to be jumping around to these passages uh, but he says in 15.8, he says, The sacrifice of the wicked is detestable to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. You see, in Solomon's day, both the sacrifice and prayer, these were both acts of worship. They were acts that, that you did as part of worship service. Now, this wasn't the whole of the worship service. There were other things that took place, but this was part of the worship service. And so he, he's telling you that, that you have wicked people who are doing sacrifice. You have upright people that are praying. And so you've got both of these as acts of worship, but they don't have have the same results. You see, the result of one of them is this detestable thing to God. The, the other is something that brings God joy and brings Him delight. And the difference is not the act itself. The difference is not the action of worship. It's the attitude that comes with that action. You see, what we could do is we could switch verse 8 around. We could switch the actions of verse 8 and leave the, the attitudes where they were and you get the same results. Because what we could say, just like we, we read it before, that the, the sacrifice of the wicked, we could switch that and say that the prayers of the wicked are detestable to the Lord, but the sacrifice of the upright are his delight. And you're, you're kind of wondering, like, Michael, you shouldn't mess with Scripture. Like, you can't just flip things around like that. And to which I'm going to respond, most of the time you're right. You shouldn't do that, except I don't have to do that. All I have to do is turn over a couple of pages because that's exactly what God tells us in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9. You see, he tells us his words in chapter 28, verse 9. says, anyone who turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer is detestable. 
So, Michael, you're telling me that there are prayers, there are sacrifices, there is even worship that is detestable, that is displeasing to God. In fact, yes. And it's not just detestable, it is, it is an abomination to him, it is disgusting to him. And those are not my words, that is the words that he gives us. This act of praying when you don't mean what you say, it's not pleasing to God, it's not delightful. The act of praying to him without earnestly coming to him doesn't mean anything to him. You see, some people have lived their entire life being wicked. And some people have lived their entire life doing wicked things. And so when all of us hear this idea of being wicked, someone who is wicked in their sacrifices, we tend to think the worst of the worst. When we hear the word wicked, we tend to think of the, the Adolf Hitlers, the Joseph Stalin, the Saddam Husseins. There's, there's terrible people that just did terrible things across their society. And we tend to think that, that that's who he's talking about in this passage. And we may even expand that just a little bit to, yeah, not just those really, really wicked people, but maybe just just wicked people of people who killed someone, people who murdered someone. We may include those, or, or maybe we broaden our definition of wicked and, and we say it's someone who kidnapped someone else, or someone who did something bad to someone else, or someone who defrauded an elderly person out of their life savings. All of those, those we would classify all those as wicked. And so my guess is that as we sit in this room, most of us have these lines that we draw of what constitutes wicked behavior and someone who's wicked versus someone who's not. But you know what I found over and over in talking to people? Everybody draws those lines to exclude themselves from that definition. None of us draw the line to include ourselves in what Solomon would describe as a wicked person. And we do that because we have the wrong standard. We do that because we are comparing ourselves to the wicked that we see in this world. We do that because we're comparing ourselves to Adolf Hitler, to Joseph Stalin, to all these atrocious people. We do that and we say, listen, compared to them, I'm really good. But that's not who we're to compare ourselves to. That's not the standard of comparison. That doesn't make you wicked versus righteous. You see, the truth is, and I'm going to show you some biblical truth here in just a moment. The truth is that I'm looking at two classes of people in this world. You either are wicked or you were wicked. That's it. There's not a category of these are good wicked, these are bad wicked, these are really wicked. No, you either are wicked or you were wicked. All of us sitting in this room, all of us watching online, you either are or you were. You see this Hebrew word, it's translated as wicked here, is rasha. And rasha, it does mean guilty of criminal actions. Okay, So it does include that. People who are guilty, who have committed a crime. And so if that were all this word meant, then most of us sitting in here wouldn't fall under that definition. Most of us sitting in here, we wouldn't have this problem because we'd be like, yep, sure, it talks about those people who commit crimes. I mean, we'll overlook the misdemeanors. We'll overlook the traffic violations, those little, those little tickets and fines. We'll overlook those. And so most of us, we wouldn't fall into this category category wicked if it only said that you were guilty of crimes. But that's not all this word includes. You see, this word includes those who are guilty, or excuse me, or who are hostile towards God. And most of us don't think of ourselves that way, but let me give you the final definition of this word. Anyone who is guilty of sin. You see, not a specific sin, not just the sins that you don't like from other people, any sin, any sin in general would put you into the category sitting right here, sitting in this moment. Any of us who have ever come into sin, we would fall under this category of being wicked. Kind of changes the way we look at this verse for just a minute, doesn't it? Because all of a sudden, wicked isn't somebody who's sitting on death row because they killed 15 people. Wicked is the person sitting next to you. Wicked is you sitting right here in church right now. You see, the only reason that some of us are, were wicked but are no longer wicked 
is because some of us realize what Jesus did for us. You see, the only reason that some of us were wicked and are no longer wicked is because we realize that we were wicked. We realize that we were hostile towards God. We realize that we needed a Savior. And we realize that God stepped out of heaven, sent His Son from heaven to die for us so that we could become righteous again in Him, so that we may be saved and reconciled to Him, that through the blood of Christ we don't become hostile towards God, we don't become enemies of God. Instead, we become sons and daughters of God. You see, the only thing that separates the wicked from those who used to be wicked is the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, and the reason that the sacrifice of the wicked is detestable to God is because they have spent their entire life saying, God, I want nothing to do with you. God, your authority doesn't matter to me. God, that, that what you say doesn't matter to you, to me. God, in fact, I've got something better. I've got something greater. And I've got a better plan in my life than you do. And so you have no control and no authority to me whatsoever. That's what the wicked person says. That's what all of us used to say. That's what some of us are still saying. And yet we show up for church on Sunday morning just like these wicked people showed up for temple to do their sacrifices every single week. Why? Why would you do that if that was your attitude towards God? If you didn't like God or you didn't believe God exists, if you didn't, if you didn't want to submit yourself to the authority of God, why would you show up and do what God calls you to do or tells you to do? One of two reasons. Either one, you're doing it because this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you're commanded to do, this is what you're compelled to do, or two, you do it for show. So that even though your attitude on the inside is hostile towards God, you don't want everybody else knowing that, so you show up and you do your religious things, you do the right things, and everybody thinks that you're in the right path. But you're not. You see, Isaiah describes the folks that we would say in this situation in chapter 28, verse 13 and 14. God describes their actions this way. He says, The Lord said, Because these people approach me with their mouths to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me. And their worship consists of man-made rules learned by rote. He goes on in verse 14, and he ties in this idea of wisdom in verse 14. He says, Therefore, I will again confuse these people with wonder, after wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men will vanish, and the understanding of their perception or their perception will be hidden. You ever thought about the reason that we don't have the wisdom of God is not because He's failed to come through with the promises that He gave us. It's because we came to Him with lip service instead of a heart that was seeking after Him. We came to Him with our mouths while our heart was far from You see, listen, prayer that pleases God is in sacrifices that please God, worship that is pleasing to God, is not the action that we do. It's the attitude that we come to that action with. See, prayer that pleases God is never done for show. Prayer that pleases God is never done out of compulsion. It is never done because this is what we're supposed to do or this is what we have to do. It's never done for show. It's never done for compulsion. It's never done because this is what we're supposed to do. It's never done because this is what we learned as a kid and this is what we're taught to do and so this is just what we do. See, it's always done when our heart is inclined to Him. It's always done when our heart is seeking after Him. You see, prayer that pleases God doesn't seek something from God. It seeks after God Himself. Prayer that pleases God knows that God doesn't owe us anything, but it recognizes that He gave us everything. You see, some of us come to sacrifice, and some of us come to worship, and some of us come to prayer because we think that God will owe us a favor if we do. We think that if we come, we check this little religious box every week, whether it's worship or sacrifice or prayer or reading our Bible. We think that if we do those things, then God will somehow owe us for all the good things we did. You see, a prayer that pleases God realizes that God doesn't owe you anything. Because He already gave you everything. 
A prayer that pleases God doesn't seek after the things of God. It seeks after God Himself. And the only thing that we have, or a prayer that pleases God, realizes that He gave us everything. And the only chance we have to be righteous is not found in what we did and all the boxes we checked. It's only found in the Christ and what He did for us. A prayer that pleases God has to start with Christ and knowing that He is our only hope of righteousness. And I'm not going to tell you that your life is going to be perfect and all your prayers are going to be answered right away. It's not going to happen that way. Because even in the righteousness of Christ, we still choose other things instead of God. We still choose sin in our life. And so Proverbs makes it clear that sin is one of those things that hinders your prayer. And so if you're feeling this disconnect between you and God, I'm not saying this is the reason, but it may be something you want to examine in your life. You see, if I'm sitting at my desk and my phone rings, and, and I may be in the middle of something very important very, uh, that I, I'm trying to focus on, and my phone rings, I look over there and it's my wife calling I'm really probably going to answer that phone call, all right? If I'm sitting at my desk and I'm working on something that's pretty important and something I'm focused on, and some of you guys call and I see your name pop up on my phone, I'm probably going to answer that phone, all right? Now, I know some of you are like, wait, I've called you and you didn't answer me, okay? It's not because I, it's because I couldn't, all right? I promise you, all right? It's not because I didn't want to. But I'm going to be honest with you. There are times when I'm sitting at my desk and I'm working, I'm really focused on something, and a number pops up on my phone. I'm probably not going to answer it if I'm focused on something else, okay? And so I'm sorry if I don't have your name programmed in my phone and you popped up as a number instead of a name, I'll work on that, okay? If that's ever the case, leave me a message. I promise I'll get back with you. But see, there's a, there's, there's a, a connection. There's a reason why I would answer some of my phone calls versus some of the other one. There's a, the communication is connected to the relationship I have with whoever's trying to get in touch with me. You see, the connection I have with my wife is very close. The relationship I have with my wife is very close. And so the connection I have in relationship communication is very close together. I'm going to answer her phone calls versus someone who's trying to reach me about my car's extended warranty for the 15th time today. Okay? Because they don't know me and they don't know my car. And they don't know that I've never had an extended warranty on my car, so it can't be expiring. I don't know how you deal with those, but see, there's a connection between our closeness in our relationship and our communication that we have with who we're trying to communicate with. In, Psalm, in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 29, Solomon sets up this contrast between the wicked and the righteous. He carries it through, and he writes in chapter 15, verse 29, he says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayers of the righteous. And later on, in chapter 28, verse 9, He says, Anyone who turns his ears away from hearing the law, even his prayer is detestable. Now, we spend a lot of time walking through this idea of wicked, and we spend a lot of time that it's not just murderers and thieves, it's all of us who have committed sins. And, and it's anyone, according to verse 9, who has turned their ear away from hearing the law of God. Anyone who's turned their back on the commands of God. It is anyone who, who allows sin to drive a wedge between them and God the Father. In fact, Isaiah chapter 59 Verse 2 puts it this way very clearly. He says, But your iniquities have built barriers between you and your God, and your sins have made Him hide His face from you so that He does not listen. You see, when we choose sin over God, we choose to turn our ears away from His laws. We choose to put this barrier of separation between us and Him. In essence, what Proverbs is saying is, why do we expect God to listen and respond to us when we haven't listened and responded to Him? Why should we expect God to hear our words when we didn't hear the words that He had been telling us throughout centuries and generations? Greg Laurie, the pastor, once wrote this. He says, if, you are pre excuse me, if you're practicing sin as a Christian, it will bring your prayer life to a screeching halt. 
You will either find that you love sin more than you love prayer, or you'll find that you are so discouraged by the disconnection you feel when you pray that you'll just give up on the idea of praying altogether. You see, when we feel this disconnection or this lack of connection between God and ourselves, it's not because God moved somewhere else. It's not because God is distant and He was someplace now that you've got to track Him down. It's probably because we have built a barrier between us and Him, that we've had sin in our life, that we, we built this barrier. And so if you are tired of your prayers bouncing off the ceiling and not getting anywhere, then maybe it's time we examine what's going on in our lives. You see, maybe we need to stop and, and, and focus on getting back to where we should be. Or maybe it's the fact that you're praying about something that God's already given you the answer to long, long ago. You're praying about a situation in your life, and yet there's a whole book of wisdom that reveals that situation and the answer to that situation. And God says, you don't want to hear my answer because I gave it to you hundreds of years ago. You've turned your ear away from me. And why do you want me to, to split the heavens open? Why do you think I need to send a dove down? Why do you think I need to come some extra way, some extra special way to get your attention when you've had it your whole life? And yet we've turned our ear away from it and we expect God to show us something, to reveal something to us, to lay out something for us different than what He's done. And so really, if we want our prayers answered, then some of us need to get serious about the sin in our life. Some of us need to get really serious about building and tearing down these walls that we have built up in our life. Which leads to the next lesson that Proverbs teaches about prayer. And it's simply this, that prayer should include confession and repentance. You see, there's, there's a lot of opposites that go on in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, there's another set of opposites that he uses. But this time, instead of the wicked versus the righteous, he talks about those that hide their sin versus those that confess and repent of them. And in that verse, he says in chapter 28, verse 13, he says, "...the one who conceals his sin will not prosper." But whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. You see, it's interesting that Solomon writes this in this passage because this is the story of Solomon's life. Some of you remember that Solomon is the son of this great king, King David, who, who had an affair with a married woman, um, and she was married, and he was married to several other women at the same time. And he wanted her, and so he had an affair with her, and he got her pregnant. And there's chapters after chapters of him trying to cover up and trying to conceal this sin. So much so that he had the, the lady's husband sent in from the battlefield so that he could cover this up. And when that plan didn't work, he had the, 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 the husband put on the front lines and literally murdered by his own army so that he could cover up his sin. And then if you read through the book of Psalms... You'll find some psalms that are great in their worship and they talk about how great God is. But you'll come along this one section in the book of Psalms where it is all about brokenness. And it's all about being broken hearted. And those are the psalms that David writes during this time when he is not confessing his sin. Those are the times that, that, that David is writing because his life has gone downhill so fast. And he finally reaches this point of brokenness and this point of misery that he cries out to God for mercy and forgiveness. He finally confesses his sins and that's what brings him back to the right relationship with God. And the truth is that our sins might be different from David, but the results is probably going to be the same. That if you're too busy trying to cover up sin, or you're too busy trying to excuse sin, you're never going to make it better. You're only going to make it worse. As one author put it this way, he says that when we remain silent like David about our sin, we will quickly discover that our fellowship with God is severed, that God's blessings and guidance are forfeited, that our prayers become powerless and ineffectual, and that our spiritual growth is stunted, and our service becomes fruitless, and our joy ceases. He goes on to say that we will never move forward or grow closer in our relationship with God 
until we deal with the sins in our life. And to deal with the sins in our life, Solomon says that we have to do two things. We have to confess them and we have to renounce them. Or we have to repent of them. Both of those things are needed. You see, so many of us want to stop at the first one. We want to confess our sins and think that's it. We, and, and let me clarify what we mean by confession. Confession is not that you come to me as a priest and say, Michael, I've done this, this, and this. You don't have to come to me at all. You can go straight to the one you offended. You can go straight to God and tell Him what you did. You see, confession is simply acknowledging what you did was wrong. It's coming into agreement that this is what I did and I know this is wrong. That is confession. Right? That's the first part of it. Those who confess their sins will find mercy, but it doesn't stop there. He goes on the second part. Not only do you confess it, but you renounce it or you abandon those sins. That's where you find mercy. You see, mercy is not happening when we just admit fault that we turned our back on God. Mercy is not happening when we just say, God, I'm sorry, and I'm sorry, and I'm sorry, and I'm sorry. Mercy is found when we say, I'm sorry, and I hate what I did so mad that I'm turning my back on it to come back after you. That I hate where I've been and what I've done to you so much that I'm turning my back on it and back to you. When I hate what I've done so much because I look at the cross and see how ugly the sin is and what it truly costs, that I want to come back to you open arms and ready to go. I'm not just sorry for what I did, but I'm going to transform my life from this moment on. That's what repentance is. That's what it looks like to renounce your sin or to abandon your sin. If we want to tear down the barriers that are hindering our prayer lives, then maybe some of us need to start with our confession. Some of us need to start not with confession, but repentance. And we need to get serious about the sin that is blocking our life and blocking our connection with God. You see, when we do that, we find this last part of this idea of prayer in Proverbs, that when we pray with confession and repentance, we find that it opens us up to correction, which is where we need to be in the first place. The last idea, and the last proverb we're going to look at this morning is Proverbs 28, verse 14. It says, Happy is the one who is always reverent, but the one who hardens his heart falls into trouble. You see, after we remove the barriers of sin in our life, after we come to this point of confession and repentance, then we're opened up to see who God really is and not who we want Him to be. You see, there's a difference in those. There's a difference between who God really is and who we want God to be. Because what we want God to be is okay with our sins. What we want God to be is this God who says, You know what? I know I said that, but it's okay for you. you got an excuse. you got a reason for that. That's not the God who is. That's the God we want. And that's not the God that the Bible presents. The God who the Bible presents and the God who is true is the one who says it and never changes it. The God who says this is sin and it's always going to be sin. The one who says this is what is bothering you in your prayer life, and there's a reason for it. Because you're not in a relationship with me, and I'm not going to lower the standard so that you can fit it. I'm going to make the standard, and I'm going to give you a way to fit the standard, and it's going to come through the blood of Christ. You see, if we're going to remove the barriers of sin in our life, we've got to be open to see God for who He really is. See Him for the moment of reverence. See Him in His leading and His guiding and His correction. You see, when we become moments of prayer where we are open to correction, it allows us to see ourselves as simply a mound of clay that is ready to be shaped and molded by the potter himself. And the more time we spend in prayer, the softer we become. The more time we allow Him to work in our heart, the softer our heart becomes. and allows us to be molded and shaped into the beautiful creation that He had us planned from the very beginning. When we were designed, when we were created in His workmanship. When we spend more time in prayer, it allows Him the time to work with us and, and, be, and correct us so that we become exactly what we were created and designed to be. So let me simply ask you this. 
Is that what's happening in your prayer life? That you are spending time in Him and you are asking Him, God, search me, try me, remove anything that is unpleasing in my life. God, if there's any barriers between me and you that I have put there, then God, I'm ready to see them. You see, because we can't remove them if we don't see them. We can't remove them if we don't know they're there. And some of us have just been there so long that we think it's normal. Some of us have just been there so long, that barrier has been there so long that we just thought this was the way it was supposed to be. You see, when we come to the moments of correction, we come to the moments when we say, God, if there is anything in my life, whether I know it or don't know it, I want you to show it to me so clearly so that I can renounce it and I can confess it and I can move closer to you so that I can be corrected by you. You see, it's the only way that our prayers are ever going to be pleasing to God. It's the only way that we can ever be molded and shaped by the God who not only hears our prayers, but delights in our prayers. Let's pray together.